This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to Beyond Politics broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, and I want to invite you to make sure to hit the subscribe or follow button, whatever your podcast platform calls for, uh, on your podcast platform so that you get all of our shows. Your subscriptions and your ratings and your reviews really do help us out. And we want to welcome all the new listeners who have been flocking to Beyond Politics. We see it showing up in all of the data and analytics we get, and it's awesome. We're really excited to welcome all of you. Speaking of people we're excited to welcome, Magdi Semro is a freelance writer focusing on politics, culture, and science who's from Alaska and now lives in Pennsylvania. She is an incisive analyst and critic of what's going on politically, what's going on in in policy. And she's recently written an article entitled, Joe Biden's plan will transform America the way the great society did. Here's three ways journalists fail to tell the story. It's a really fascinating look at what's the real substance of Joe Biden's build back better plan and infrastructure plan and his entire vision for America and how the media is just missing the boat. Magda, welcome to Beyond Politics. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. And I really enjoyed the article and I've enjoyed following your writing uh, a great deal in general. We uh, we both, uh, our work appears on the website, the, the newsletter, the editorial board, the editor of that site uh, was a guest on this show a couple weeks ago. Um, I know your writing also appears in other outlets, uh, as does mine. Um, so I, it, you're, you're a great read, and I really dug your, your premise here. So let's just let the listeners know, what is your, your core argument here? Because it, it seems to be that the press is, is really missing the boat on what's going on. Yeah, so there's the, the the broadest argument is, as you stated it, I just don't feel like the press coverage is doing justice to the bill itself. Um, I don't think, you know, in general, no matter what political persuasion one is, um, I don't think that anyone has a really good idea of what the stakes are. Um, so I wrote the piece and I identified what I thought were three big problems. The first problem, as I see it, is that this is really sort of a transformational idea, uh, this idea of human infrastructure. And I think we hear it, human infrastructure, and it doesn't really sink in what that means. But what the Biden administration is proposing and you know what Pelosi supports in Congress and so on, is that we need to think about infrastructure in a different way. Um, So we typically think about bridges and highways and that's good and we do need to invest in bridges and highways. Uh, But what they're proposing is something more philosophical which is that what makes a society function is human welfare. And that if humans are not taken care of at every aspect of the lifespan, uh, society will have all of these cracks in it, all of these vulnerabilities, just like a highway that's not well taken care of. 
So I think that this idea is just philosophically really interesting. Um, and it's been around forever, obviously, in progressive circles and so on. But the, the fact that they're selling it as human infrastructure is very interesting. So I think that that itself is, you know, however you feel about it, it's a debate that's worth having. Like, is this a reasonable way to talk about, um, you know, what, what makes a society great? What makes a society strong, right? So that's the first issue. The second issue, which is much more concrete, is just that we don't hear about what's in the bill. Um, you know, the headlines are very focused on the cost to the extent that, you know, most headlines say it's the $3.5 trillion bill. That's basically the name of the bill in the news, right? Democrats, $3.5 trillion bill. Um, they don't call it the child care bill or the elder care bill or the housing bill. Um, or the education bill. All of these things are within the bill, um, but are never really explicitly stated in headlines. So that's the other problem. And obviously also I talk about climate change. There's a lot about climate change in the bill. Um, so those are the first two problems. And then the second problem, and I think that this is a problem that uh, exists beyond this one bill, um, is that the initial cost this $3.5 trillion over 10 years is focused on um, so frequently, but none of the arguments about the returns on that cost are equally represented. So there are a lot of economic arguments and you know, not everyone's in agreement, but there are a lot of economic arguments about this being a bill that could really help the US economy in the long term. Um, and though that side of the debate is never considered. So it's just the initial cost. It's never the return on investment. There are no, the arguments about the returns on investment are never stated. So those are the three problems that I talked about. Well, they're all very real. And the article is, lays them out in, in great detail. And I, I want to hit all of them, but just to read back what I'm hearing here, it's, it's the Democrats don't know even what to label, what to call, what they're trying to do here. That's problem number one. Problem number two is that nature abhors a vacuum. And so in that vacuum, the press is just calling this the big money bill, the big spending bill. Well, of course, that doesn't sound awesome. And number three, they're getting the number wrong. They're, they're, not, they're only showing a top line cost that isn't real. It's not, it's not a real number. And it's shorn of the benefit. Let's just kind of focus on sort of that that first failing for a second, the fact that we're kind of calling it human infrastructure. No one knows what that means. Is it about robots? Are we turning people into bridges? I remember I worked for a politician uh, who's not well known. He went on to become the governor of Maine. I, I worked for him when he was in Congress. He was running for governor of Maine. This was 20 years ago. And he heard an economist talk about, hey, you know what? We, we, think about value-added products. It's Maine, so there's a lot of wood, a lot of wood products. So we think as economists about value-added products. You take raw lumber and it's worth a certain amount, but if you add value to it, then you sell it for more. And that's how you develop an economy is you, you create value-added products. And he said, look, we need to do the same thing with people. We need to invest in our people. So of course, my politician is a great guy. I love him, but he started talking about adding value to people, which didn't sound right politically either because it sounded like he was saying, you know, we've got a lot of worthless people. We've got to add value to them. Somehow in the last 20 years, Democrats haven't figured this out, have they? 
they're they're still stuck on the this really clunky human infrastructure add value to people thing that doesn't explain what they're actually doing. So I guess my question for you is, I mean, look, we've all read a million pieces about how the media is bad <laughs> and they're they're doing they're doing a bad job. I think everyone will believe your premise there. But to what degree have Democrats sort of made their own bed that they're now lying in through their failure to explain what this is and let the narrative get taken away from them and make it all about the top line spending number? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a really interesting point and one that I have conflicting feelings about. Because if you had asked me two months ago, I would have said human infrastructure is genius messaging, right? Um, because what do Democrats have to contend with all the time? They have to contend with socialism, right? Um, really charged work. You know, people think that you know expansion of government programs is inherent with socialism. So they have to contend with that. They have to contend with welfare, where uh, welfare is a supercharged word politically um, that people react to, not really based on content, but just you know, political intuition, right? And so, you know, two months ago, I thought, you know, here they are proposing an expansion of the welfare state, um, and they're doing it using a term that is actually quite politically popular, right? Infrastructure. Infrastructure is a popular term, um, and people hear infrastructure, and they feel good about it. Uh, that's one of the reasons why, <laughs> I mean, every single time Trump had a scandal, it became infrastructure week all of a sudden, right? Because it was a great distraction from whatever was going on. Infrastructure, everyone can get around infrastructure. So at first I thought that was pretty genius messaging. And again, going back to the sort of philosophy of the bill about what makes a society strong, I think that's genius too. At this point though, I do tend to believe that it's so sort of esoteric and not um, transparent enough that people aren't grasping the underlying, um, the underlying sort of provisions in the bill, the underlying intent of the bill. So, you know, I've gone from one place where I'm like, oh, this is great messaging, um, to another place where I'm kind of like, uh, I think this is obscuring things somewhat. And that perhaps something like, you know, the families bill, America people bill, I'm not a messaging expert, but something, you know, that would have made it clearer to people exactly what was going on. Well, it does remind me a little bit of the scene in the movie Roxanne where someone calls Steve Martin, the protagonist, big nose. That's the whole that's the whole idea. That's the premise, right? Is he's got a giant nose. It's Cyrano de Bergerac. And he says, I, I could come up with something better. I could come up with 20 something betters. I just have this feeling that Democrats, if they were really put to it, could come up with 20 something betters, invest in people so they can invest in America or whatever the heck it is. I, the, the, the upshot of it is what we've ended up in is Democrats being insufficiently nimble about seeing, look, maybe human infrastructure was a great idea two months ago, three months ago, whenever that was sort of the headline, but it's not. And you can see it in the coverage. You can see it in the headlines. The press has reverted to their go-to move for getting clicks and eyeballs and earballs, which is this kind of empty calories drama of Washington process. It's a process fight. Well, what's the upshot of that? It makes it seem like Democrats are feckless, useless. People are able to sort of wave their hands and say, gosh, these guys are, it's just a mess. And, you know, I do 
a radio program where I have a panel discussion and I have Republicans and, and, and progressives on it. And my Republican colleague is always able to say, this is just $3.5 trillion of gobbledygook, right? It's, it's, it's a hot mess in Washington. And I end up chiding her, she's a friend of mine on the air, and saying, I'm sorry, but giving childcare to people, to working mothers, so that they can get back to work, that's not gobbledygook. Taking 13 million children out of poverty, as we did in the American Rescue Plan, that's not gobbledygook. And it takes me having to say those things because the narrative has been completely subsumed. I mean, I guess I, I want to ask you, I know I said a moment ago that it's really easy and fun to pick on the media, but maybe we do, do need to spend a moment on that because there was an interesting, there was an interesting article as Jonathan Chait in New York Magazine pointing out like, look, we have this weird media setup these days where half the media, uh, the, in terms of viewership and readership, the conservative media is essentially a propaganda outlet for Republicans and most recently Donald Trump. The other half that's typically called the liberal media isn't really liberal so much as it tries to maintain an objectivity and under that you know, rubric of balance, that, that means they, they work overtime to give half criticism and half kind of praise to a democratic administration. So you got 50% negative plus 50-50 of the other half. That's, I'm doing the math here, people. That's 75% negative for Democrats. That's kind of rough. I mean, right. is, is that is that sort of, do you, do you sense a, a feel of that here that what Biden and the Democrats are up against is a media landscape where half of it is completely negative and the other half is, you know, in, in search of balance is giving them a pretty raw deal. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that's the case. And I don't want to, um, you know, I, I don't want to attribute any motivation to that, but I think that, you know, describing the media landscape, um, I mean, I'm happy to attribute motives to right-wing media, but in terms of more mainstream landscape, right? Um, yeah, it does, it does amount to the fact that, to a, to a situation where Democrats get hammered by right-wing ma media and then within the general media landscape, they get treated with this balance, right? And I think that um, another contributing factor to this is that I'm speaking as a Democrat, right? Uh, so I, I, I gathered that, although I didn't want to push you on it. <laughs> so I might be biased here in my interpretation. Uh, but Republicans, like if you look at the Trump administration, scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal, even the 2016 race, Scandal for Trump, scandal for Trump, scandal for Trump, over and over and over again, right? Um, then Democrats have, you know, they make errors, they, you know, say something wrong, uh, all sorts of things, you know, they're flawed, just like any regular human being. But the, the sort of amount, the volume of the scandals is so much less. And so when you have this sort of equalizing media environment, what happens is that one issue with the Democrats gets focused on over and over and over and over again over time. Um, and it becomes much more sort of nitpicky where, or I should say, it's not always nitpicky, but the focus is sort of always on, you know, this one issue. Whereas for the Republicans, it's just a constant cycle, right? 
um, of one thing after another, after another, sort of chaotic. And those things don't get entrenched in people's minds, right? So I think that that's another thing in contributing to the sort of imbalance where um, there's just greater focus on small issues with Democrats over time. Whereas these bigger issues with Republicans just get sort of turned over and over in a cycle. And that creates sort of a really weird Right. It's like Hillary's emails all over again. Right. It's like, first of all, it's a perfect what about is what about her emails? It's like, well, and and it's it's this false equivalence of there's a standard that Fox News does not hold itself to that the New York Times and CNN does. Now, look, CNN messes up all the time. They do they do bad things. They're not, they're, they're far from perfect. And they have their, I, I mean, I guess one could say that their coverage slants left, that they certainly, the, the whole way they frame things. Yes, I guess they, from an editorial standpoint, they, they slant left, but that's missing the broader point, which is that Fox News is constantly, relentlessly advancing one party, the Republican parties party line. They are relentlessly critical of Democrats and they're in search of those equivalencies. They're in search of the Hillary emails. They're in search of the, there's a crisis at the border. It's really not any different than it's been. And so you get half of the media sphere kind of pursuing that kind of an agenda. And then over at CNN, it's like, well, we've got to show some objectivity. That's part of our brand that's part of, you know, we think of ourselves as balanced, objective journalists. So there's plenty of fodder in the age of Trump for negative stuff on the Republican side. Now we've got to find it on the Democratic side. And so what ends up happening when with a story like the Build Back Better agenda is, you know, they, they end up searching for, oh, it's a big fight. Where's the intrigue? And you you end up with a story of, well, on one side, Republicans say this is too much money. And on the other side, Democrats are kind of advancing that story too. So, you know, it's 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 sort of the same on both sides. We're being fair. It's really nothing like that. And I think the core insight from your article that I, that I really liked is it's like that old art of war Sun Tzu thing, which is half the battle is choosing what's the field that you're fighting the battle on. And we have allowed, we, I, I'm a Democrat too, we have allowed the media to suck us onto the landscape of the fight, the back and forth, the disarray between progressives and moderates, and the, the top line number. But shouldn't the fight be between Democrats and Republicans over, we say we should spend $500 billion over the next 10 years to make sure that people can afford private health insurance so that no one has to choose between medicine and food. You say that's too much to spend. Okay, well, that's a discussion we can have, right? Yes. And I mean, it, it's difficult It's difficult to say clearly what Democrats should be doing better, for, for my part. Um, but I am completely willing to concede the point that we're playing a game. We're, we're, giving, we're letting other people determine the game that we're playing, right? Right, um, right. As, as a group, and we need to keep bringing it back to saying, we want to give parents um, the ability to pay for childcare so that they can work, so that parents can work, 
And we also, for example, don't want um, adult children to have to make painful decisions about their own professions in order to care for their elderly parents, right? Because the elder care crisis is very real. One of the things you do in the article is you supply some of the discussion that the media is not supplying, that, th that they're not covering. You actually focus on the substance of the ideas, which you then come full circle to say, hey, look, this is the debate that should be happening both in Washington and out in the country in living rooms in rural Pennsylvania and in Alaska, which is about the ideas. Do we want to do these things for our people or not? So let's just focus on, on those points that you make for just a second. Um, I, I mean, the first one that, that jumped out to me is, is about climate change. And you made a really important point about let's compare the costs to the benefits here. So, so what were you driving at with that? Yeah, so I mean, climate change is just a small part of this bill. Um, and it's just one initial step, right? But we always sort of talk about climate change in this sort of abstract way. And we talk about, you know, how much it's gonna cost to combat it and all of that. We never talk about how much climate change is costing us right now at this moment in time, how much it has cost us over the last few years and how much more it's gonna cost us. Um, if you start looking at the data here, it's horrifying. Um, we have these hurricanes, right, that, um, you know, cost billions of dollars. Ida costs billions of dollars. Um, and Harvey, Hurricane Harvey from 2017 cost billions of dollars. There are aspects of climate change that are making these hurricanes more devastating. So the warmer ocean waters are making tropical storms more likely to develop into hurricanes. Um, they become more, they become slower. So the hurricanes move slower over land and they just dump tons of water, um, which completely devastates communities. The more water that's dumped, the more flooding there is and so on and so forth. And the economic damage from that is huge. Then, but that's just hurricanes, right? Then you've got the California wildfires. California is perpetually at this point on fire. And that is also incredibly costly. Um, and then you have the droughts. Like I think the number is maybe it's over 90. I'm going to say 98% of the Southwest was in drought this year. Um, and that then has consequences for farmers. Um, farmers are losing money. Farmers are losing tons of money. Um, and in Kentucky, they're losing millions of dollars worth of cattle. In Iowa, they're losing tons in corn and soy. Uh, and what happens when they lose money? They economically suffer. The farmers economically suffer. But the rest of us are going to economically suffer too. Food prices are going to rise and we already see the food prices rising. Um, and this is gonna get worse and worse and worse. And so I think that one thing that the media coverage and I'll add Democrats in this too, um, what people miss is just describing how costly this is. Um, it's so often linked to sort of like floozy environmentalism or whatever. And I wanna protect the environment, that's good enough for me. But really in terms of Americans more generally, make the economic argument that we need to do something about this now. Well, that's uh, well well said. And 
one of the items that, you know, you, your last article was a five minute read. My last article for the editorial board was a more than that read. It came in at like 2,400 words. So you were admirably succinct <laughs> in a way that I wasn't. So I, I don't think you even had room for this point, but to that end, one of the things that's been missing in the media discussion of the entire agenda is right now on the political landscape, we're talking about inflation. Why are we talking about inflation? Well, to some extent, it's people's lived experience, right? Prices are going up. That's real. You know, the Fed is finding we're we're at about 4.2% annually, and that's a lot more than it has been. And people are feeling it. And to some degree, it's a narrative being pushed by Republicans for political purposes. Fair enough. But what gets lost in all of this is Republicans say, well, the reason we're having this inflation is all this Washington spending. If you listen to actual economists, they say, first of all, no, that's, that's, that's not the reason at all. Second of all, one of the fundamental reasons to pass the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill is because it's anti-inflationary. The reason we're seeing inflation right now is because of supply chain bottlenecks that we would relieve if we invested in physical infrastructure. The reason we're seeing inflation right now is because we have missing items, crop loss, all the effects that you're pointing to from climate change, as well as discontinuities and availability of the labor force. Why? Because we don't have childcare, because we don't have healthcare, because we don't have paid family leave. These are the things that if we were to put in place over the next 10 years, we would reduce those pressures, we would remove those discontinuities, and it would be anti-inflationary. Are we talking about that? No, we're having an insipid discussion about whether it's okay to follow Senator Kirsten Cinema into the bathroom. The answer is no, that's not okay. That's never okay. That's horrifying. But I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested in that. I'm actually interested in your list of important points about the bill. Let's, let's go on to another one. Um, you go through education. And this is one where, I, I mean, it couldn't just be more to the point that you're making about the lack of focus on benefit in addition to cost. You point out that high quality early education for disadvantaged children can return between four and $9 for every $1 spent in terms of, you know, these kids are more likely to stay in school. They're, they're, they're gonna invoke less social spending later. I mean, even Head Start, which has been plagued with problems, uh, meta-analysis shows that it has at least a 14% positive return. So like, I, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of making your statements back to you in the form of a question, which is the laziest form of asking a question. But um, I mean, what struck you about what's missing in the education point? So this is something I feel really passionately about because my, I, I have a research background in child language and development and child literacy, right? So um, basically, you know, I look at the, all of the economic research, which you know, overwhelming, overwhelmingly points to an early investments in child education, just, you know, you get so much return on those. And we do know that they're correlated with higher high school graduate graduation rates and, um, you know, more going to college and so on and so forth. And we, so we have all of this evidence that investing in children really early is um, an economically good thing to do. Now, coming from the perspective of someone who's worked on child development, 
I know why that is, um, which is that children, um, particularly socioeconomically disadvantaged children. So uh, socioeconomically disadvantaged children, right? We know that they enter into primary school, into kindergarten and first grade, that they have much lower vocabularies than other kids. Um, and that's not because they're less intelligent and it's not because their parents are less intelligent and it's not their parents' fault. Um, it's because what happens when you have to work all the time? You don't have time to spend with the kids. And if you don't have time to spend with the kids, you're not talking to them as much, right? And if you're not talking to your kids as much, they're not going to be picking up as many words, right? And so that's not a problem that's the family's fault. That's because we're forcing people to work incredibly long hours and we're not giving them affordable childcare. So then disadvantaged children enter into elementary school and they already have a slightly lower vocabulary than um, kids of higher socioeconomic status. And that gap doesn't get, it doesn't get resolved. It just grows and grows and grows exponentially throughout the school year um, or throughout the entire school education. And why does that happen? Well, because in order to learn to read, um, you need to have a large vocabulary. Like we know that a larger vocabulary makes it easier to learn to read. Um, and so then you start to see these differences where kids of higher socioeconomic status learn to read much faster than kids of lower socioeconomic status. And again, it has nothing to do with their intelligence or anything like that. Um, and then we just see these snowballing effects where if you have early slow slowness in reading, then that's going to affect your math performance. It's gonna affect your history performance. It's gonna affect your everything. So we just see these snowballing effects throughout the lifespan from the fact that we don't take care of children very early on. And early child education, like universal pre-K, or you know, even younger than that, good child care, that would give these children so much more learning opportunities that would put them much more on the level with their peers who um, are of much higher economic status when they get to school. And it would uh, alleviate a lot of these snowballing effects that we see. It's just such a good point. And I mean, I've, you know, we do another show called Great Ideas where I hosted the uh, president of an early learning uh, online uh, program. Uh, uh, it's a not-for-profit. Um, and, uh, you know, I've, I've known them for years. And he pointed out, look, the difference on average between a child who comes from a middle-class background and a child who comes from a uh, lower socioeconomic, you know, working family background is 3,000 hours of pre-literacy training by the time that child reaches kindergarten. That is the gap that we're talking about. And if we can plug that hole, we save ourselves a tremendous amount later on when it comes to social services, not to mention the tax income we get because these are folks who are gonna go on to higher earning jobs and more productive careers. And you were actually able to cite studies that put a dollar figure on this and you add it all up and it's more than $100 billion a year over the 10-year lifetime of this Build Back Better agenda. You're talking about a trillion dollars of savings right off the top. That's the point is that we're getting caught in all this fuzzy math of, you know, kind of an agenda of, well, let's, let's look at the biggest, scariest, eye-popping number we can for the cost. 
and we're not having a real conversation that we would have as a family. At, you know, we have to invest in something as a family. Let's invest in a new roof. That's some infrastructure, right? Because if we invest in that now, we're going to save ourselves water damage that's going to cost us a lot more later. Let's invest in some childcare for our kid so that I can go to work a little bit longer. We're going to earn more. We're going to make that up in the long term. That's what families would do. That's what a rational policy conversation in America would be. We're not having that policy conversation. I want to, I'm at risk of overextending this point, but I want to tie to the fact that you live in rural Pennsylvania because this is, I'm guessing you live in greater Trumpistan politically. Um, that's sort of the character that some of these rural areas have taken on in America in recent years. And what we're seeing, this was pointed out in a, in a really good New York Times op-ed on the rise of global protest this week. And it pointed out that what we're seeing is more and more populist movements, including the, the Trump movement, that have been fueled by frustration with basically the whole neoliberal Western capitalist democratic social compact, which is we're going to have a democracy, we're going to have a market economy, we're going to trade with other market economies, and everyone is going to prosper from that. Well, that's not the way people are feeling, and they're acting out politically. And what do we end up with? We end up with Trump. And I would pair that with the revelations in the Pandora Papers and the fact that global elites are socking away hundreds of billions of dollars. And this week when Facebook went down, over the course of one hour, one hour, Mark Zuckerberg lost $7 billion in his personal fortune, which is worth the annual income of 233,000 Americans. So there's only so far we, I think we can go before people begin to say, well, wait a second, why aren't we getting the benefits of this supposed prosperity in the system? You know what, Donald Trump, I, I get that he's, he's a jerk, but at least he says he's for people like me. You can sort of see the direction that all of this is going. I mean, are you concerned that, that what we're seeing in the Build Back Better fight and the way the media is treating it is sort of a continuation of this trend of coverage that's sort of leading us toward this this inevitable political construct where, you know, people are, are going to continue to lash out in frustration because they don't hear the political system addressing their real needs. That's what Democrats are trying to do, but the media is not covering it that way. Yeah, so that's a complicated question. Yeah, I put um, a lot in there. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I would kind of, I mean, I think I might have a slight disagreement about the um, relationship between sort of economics and um, government and, and what's happening with Trump, where I think that a lot of these factors were sort of, in my opinion, have sort of been there for a while. Um, and um, in terms of the bill itself, I mean, it's a tricky question. I I think that there, at this point, there's a proportion of the population that we are not going to reach um, in terms of policy. And those are hard, hardcore Trump supporters. Now, not everyone who voted for Trump is a hardcore Trump supporter, um, but the very sort of deep, hardcore Trump supporters. It's very cultural. 
at this point. It's so deeply cultural. It's like trying to make an economic argument to someone about a religion. You know, the, we're just arguing about different points. Now, at the same time, I, I trying to be optimistic, think that over time, if we're able to pass these policies, perhaps we can build good faith and show we improve people's lives. And maybe that will change the way the argument is made um, or the sort of realm of the argument. Um, but I don't see that as being something where we can be persuasive at this moment in time. Mm. Well, that's a fair point. Now to other voters, I think that we can be persuasive. Um, and I think that um, right now we have the opportunity to sort of seize the economic argument um, and not make it hard, cold economics. But right now the Republican party is not talking about economics. They're not advancing an economic vision for the world. They're saying, saying things are too expensive you know, or they're saying something socialized or whatever, but they're not really saying here, I'm the Republican party, here's my vision. Um, they're not doing what Paul Ryan did anymore. And I mean, I have, I don't like Paul Ryan, but he expressed things in terms of an economic vision. So there's sort of this vacuum that the Republican party has left where Democrats can really come in and say, look, my policies are good for the economy, right? If you spend money, um, to help people with childcare and elder care, uh, that will give them more money to spend in the economy. If you let people go, or if you help people go to community college, uh, that will mean they'll have higher paying jobs, which will mean they'll pay more taxes, and it will mean that they contribute more money to the economy. So I think that we have a real space here for a lot of voters, you know, to make a strong economic argument that's not cold, but is really sort of like, if you invest in families, the more you invest in families, the more that you help families get education, get healthcare, the more money they will have to spend in their communities. Um, and right there, that's how you get things like rural revitalization. You know, that's, that's, that's how you get it, is to help people spend money, help people save money. Um, I think that, that that's an area where Democrats can really you know, make a good argument at this point. Well, just to build on that, you were saying to me off the air before we uh, before we started the show that you think that there is actually maybe even a misunderstanding on this politics point of what makes for good politics about it. And you were you were sharing with me an argument that Katie Porter, the representative from California, was making. So, what is that argument about sort of the, the political potency of the Build Back Better plan? Okay, so like in terms of um, in terms of whether or not it generates backlash or support, right? And and just I think you were pointing mostly to the immediacy of it that there's that unlike the Affordable Care Act, yeah. ten years ago, where you know there's an uncertain theoretical benefit far off in the future, so it was really easy to attack. It's like here's something big and scary that maybe you'll get something from in the future, but maybe you won't. So advantage. Republicans. In this case, you're, you, what we're talking about is benefits that people will feel in their lives immediately. And maybe we're getting all this wrong. Maybe maybe Build Back Better is actually politically more helpful for Democrats than infrastructure. Oh, yeah. I think it would be enormously politically beneficial. I think that that's part of the genius of the plan, especially as a pre-midterm, first-term presidential plan, right, is that if you 
you take look at progressive policy generally, you know, so we want to change healthcare, we want to change education, you know, we want to resolve student loans, all of this stuff. A lot of progressive policy, especially healthcare, involves disrupting people's lives. Um, so even if you know we have this perfect healthcare system, um, you know, whatever that might be, or in the case of the ACA, which is a vast improvement. Um, it's this great improvement, but it totally messes up people's lives in a lot of ways that they feel personally. You know, they have to change doctors, their plans, you know, the number of their plans changes, like they have to pay more, pay less. And it, it just, it, it's disruptive, right? Um, and that often comes with systemic change, uh, especially with progressive policy. And that often leads to backlash. Um, in terms of the Build Back Better bill or the human infrastructure bill, all of the things that are being proposed are additive. Uh, so it's not going to be causing any disruption. Uh, no one's going to have to change a doctor uh, or do anything like that. It's only going to be like, I'm gonna give you money for your kids. I'm gonna give you money uh, because you're elderly and you need home care. Um, I'm going to spend money in schools, right? No one's life is going to be disrupted by this bill. So it's pretty ingenious in terms of progressive policy. Uh, to, to, to do this as a first-term bill. Right, and of course, I, I mean, the only, the only nit I would pick out of it is, you know, one of the lessons learned of the stimulus uh, from, from 11 years ago, the American uh, aura, the American, I, shoot, I was working in Congress at the time, that goes to show that political elites are not in the same mind space as the rest of, of humans. American Relief and Recovery Act, or whatever the heck it was called, one of the lessons there was we really needed to cut a check. People needed to get a check in the mail to really feel. But again, you know, with Build Back Better and with the continuation of the child tax credit, there are tangible benefits that, that people would see. And your point is, they would see them immediately. And so there's been, again, this media narrative of, well, it's the, it's the moderates that really want infrastructure and they don't want all the liberal stuff for, for politics. But you're saying, well, wait a second, are you sure about that? Because there are some, there are some frontline Democrats whose seats are the most in danger this time who are saying kind of the opposite. And again, that's not the way it's getting framed. And Democrats, to some extent, are just letting the framing happen to them because they're not driving the narrative. All right, uh, we are going to have to rack up, uh, 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 wrap up here. Magdi Semro, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for your writing. Where can people find you online? Uh, they can find me on Twitter. My handle is at M-A-G-I underscore J, J-A-Y. Give her a follow. It's great stuff. And thanks so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you.